0: We're going to be in Mark 7. That's page 44 in your scripture journals. If you don't have a scripture journal, there's free scripture journals back there for you. Please feel free to take as many as you need. Hand them to your neighbors, your peoples, anything that you anyone that you might need or see, perceive that might need one. Uh, That's page 44, but as we continue this series through the Gospel of Mark, I want to remind you of some things so far. Mark is writing to us primarily to answer two questions. Uh, Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Every week we've been seeing both of these things at play. The first question, who is Jesus? Mark has been building a case through This book that he will give us the answer to at the climax of this letter at the end of chapter 8. But the second question for us to consider of of what he came to do is an answer. Mark is taking this whole book to build his case for. It is repetition that is our friend in this series. A continued confrontation between the image of Jesus we have in our minds and the image of Jesus in the Bible. That's what's happening here. All of our biases, all of our traditions, all of our idolatry about Jesus, Jesus Jesusy things colliding with the true person and work of Christ. Mark is building a case for us family that Jesus is a king. A king better than any president, governor, mayor, or historical icon that you know of. Jesus is the king of the least, the last, and the lost. And he's the king of outcasts. He's the king of lepers. He's the king of tax collectors and revolutionaries. He is the great liberator of our body and our soul. He is the servant king who has has all authority over all things, over creation, over sickness, over demonic possession, even Over death for seven chapters, Mark has been painting this picture primarily for the persecuted Roman church hiding in the catacombs. That that was the original audience, a church that, that just before they were driven away into the crypts beneath the city was divided on who the faith belongs to. What race, what peoples does this faith belongs to? And Mark writes with clear intentions, portraying a uh, portraying a king that is for everyone. And so our text today so wonderfully highlights. But to come to that conclusion, we must first come to another question. This king, who is ushering in this kingdom... With his life and ministry, how, how do we relate to someone like that? How do we understand him? How do, how do we get to know him? Not know of him. That's part of the problem. Far too many proclaiming the name of Christ. They don't really know Jesus. They know of Jesus. So how, how do we, all of us sitting in this room, all the people outside these doors... How do we, how do people have access to know, truly know, Jesus Christ? This morning we come to an important text. A text that Mark writes in conjunction with the story that follows. But we're only going to view the first part this morning. It is a conversation with a heroine in the faith. A dear sister to us. This conversation, this, this is a conversation of, of great significance, not just for the original audience, but for us today, family. There is real consequence for us in this passage. And so I've tagged our time today, a great answer, as we get to understand, we get to, we get to receive our answer through the lens of this scene with Jesus and this woman. We'll see Jesus extend a compliment to her that demands our closest attention. This is the thing. Thousands of people, named and unnamed, appear in Scripture. But only very few, very, very few, have actually been complimented for the size of their faith. And So I have three observations for us. A bold faith, a hindrance to the faith, and obtaining the faith. Those are my three points. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you, as together we hear from the Lord this morning? Mark 7, starting in verse 24. If you don't have your Bible, the text is up on the screen. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread... And throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we need your grace again this morning. Give us ears to hear the goodness of your word. Give us softened hearts to receive it gladly. Give us hands and feet that do your will. Father, we ask you to make the gospel clear to us, to make your word alive in our lives. Would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought as the preacher, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Growing up and even today, there are a number of great women, fictional and real, that have encouraged me, given me hope for better days, have shown me the, the possibilities of life. Women that have fixed my eyes on Jesus, heroines. From Wonder Woman to that beautiful brown skinned woman back there. What's up, girl? It's anniversary today, I gotta shout her out. <laughs> Women have long been though underappreciated, appropriated, have had their true accomplishments kept hidden away. I find this to be true really at the forefront of my mind because of a particular film I just saw. Hidden Figures is an important film. Released in 2016, the film is based on a true story that takes place during the United States race against Russia to put a man in space. But in order for this goal to be accomplished, NASA would have to bank on the talent of three African American female mathematicians to serve as the brains of the operations. They would be the human computers that put John Glenn into orbit and guaranteed his safe return. It is a story about the hardships of not just being African-American in America in 1960, but also a successful woman in a male-dominated workplace. Why do I share this amazing film with you? One, it's really good. Go watch it. I heard a "Mm mm-hmm. It's good, though, right? (laughs) Thank you. I need you to say that when I say something good, though. (laughs) Jesus. You made me lose my place. (laughs) But two, our passage today is about a hidden figure. A person who we do not even know her name is in this exchange with Jesus. And Mark finds incredibly important to his gospel narrative. Well, what what do I mean by that? Well, we know that the Gospels are selective accounts of Christ's work. John says at the end of his Gospel, John 21, 25, Now there are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so each Gospel writer compiled their compilations of work. Matthew and Mark specifically, for our time this morning, found this moment with this woman to be an account not just work mentioning, but to position it in such a way that is to communicate an extremely important moment in the ministry of King Jesus. Would you consider with me, Mark's, uh, uh, at least in Mark's case, what just came before this moment? There are at least two examples of a lack of faith. First, we'll consider Jesus' opposition, the Pharisees. Last week, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, we see Jesus have a tense back and forth with the religious elite. They who are planning to kill Jesus try to weaken Jesus' credibility to the public eye by questioning the disciples' keeping of the Mishnah, or Jewish oral laws. Jesus had strong words for these men. He says, you hypocrites, you have elevated your man-made laws with the authority of God's word. In fact, your man-made laws are keeping you from actually keeping the actual law of God and being, and this is important, a proper representation and reflection of God's love for the world. He says, your man-made laws have given you racial superiority to the Gentiles. That was not God's design. Chosen don't mean better. And separated don't mean segregated. But that moment with the Pharisees is sandwiched between two moments with the disciples. First, before this exchange with the Pharisees, we have six chapters full of full-time ministry with the 12 from incredible healings to demonic exorcism these 12 jewish men have seen it all in ways the pharisees have not the way the crowds have not they have never left jesus aside they eat with him they sleep with him they pray with him or watch him pray right so they have an intimate view of these amazing works and the sermons that Jesus has preached. And yet, consistently, the disciples do not fully understand. The word understand is important, the way Mark uses it at least. It's, in the Greek, it's connected to an unbelief. It's far more than a cognitive mental understanding. It's that the whole personhood has yet to understand. What did we learn from Jesus teaching through parables, right? We learned that Jesus speaks in parables to draw a line in the sand, so to speak. When you hear a parable, you are either encouraged and filled with true understanding, again, not simply cognitive... Or you are confused, discouraged, rebuked. We see this clearly in chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the miracle itself is a parable. Jesus is teaching that he is the bread of life, the bread whom full satisfaction is found in. Jesus broke every piece of bread, served with his hand to symbolize his body breaking for every single person in attendance. And yet the disciples did not understand because that evening when they see Jesus walk on water, they fear it's a ghost. And Mark tells us in verse 52 of chapter 6, they were afraid because what? Mark says, they didn't understand the loaves. That's before, but then we have after the Pharisees discourse. After, once Jesus straight up tells these Pharisees off, he teaches to everyone outside with another parable. And he says, it's not what comes in you. Food, Gentile germs, dust from another land. It's not what comes in you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. It's your heart. Your heart makes you unclean. He then takes the disciples inside the house in private. And what does Mark say? Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you still don't understand. That's the context. For which Mark gives us this amazing story. Let's let the text make its case. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So So the scene is set up. Up to this point, Jesus had been doing ministry in all Jewish providences in Judea. And this work had been going so well that it was crushing and constant. Everywhere he goes, a crowd of people swarm him. They don't just follow him. They swarm him. But he has not yet done ministry in the Decapolis, in the Gentile areas. But here, in this moment, Jesus goes to Tyre. And he's looking for some relief from the crowds. It says he's, he's going to hide. Since chapter 1, Jesus has longed for some quiet time. He has longed for some space, going up to the mountains, waking up really, really early in the morning before the sun was even up to, to get away and pray. But consistently, the crowds are overwhelming at times so large, Jesus has to get into a boat and teach them from the water because they're just surrounding him on land. Now Jesus here is, again, looking to get away. And so he heads into Gentile lands. But the hope for rest, the hope for silence and solitude does not work. He is, once again, interrupted. And this is where our first observation comes, a bold faith. Look at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. Can we Pause. Remember remember when Jesus healed a man with a legion of demons. Remember that man wanted to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus told him no, and instead created the man to be the first missionary. And where did that man go preach? He preached in the Decapolis because he was a Gentile. And many Greeks were converted. That's what Mark says. Mark says that that man's ministry was fruitful. Many were converted. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I think we can safely infer that this woman is somehow, by an extension, a product of this man's ministry. It is fascinating to me that this woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit hears about Jesus from a man who was delivered from a legion of unclean spirits. I'm just saying, it makes sense to me. But the verse continues, and she came down and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. There's so much in here. There really is. There's so much in here for us to unpack. I'm going to try to do my best to do it succinctly. I can't make any promises, though. It's a lot. This woman finds Jesus, hears about Jesus, finds Jesus, and barges into his place and falling to his feet is asking for something that is bold. The faith that she has in him to do what she needs to be done is bold. It is alive. Mark tells us that she's a Seraphim. Matthew helps us out in his account. He says she's a Canaanite. This detail, uh, this detail, is important because it tells us that she was a close neighbor to the Jews, and therefore, even though she is a pagan, even though she is a Gentile, is aware of all the Jewish customs—that's the oral law included—all of the Jewish beliefs, which is the actual God's law and the ways of living. She knows that she does not possess any of the religious, moral, social, cultural qualifications to approach a Jewish rabbi, let alone show up in the manner in which she is. This helps us understand the audacity that is in the room. The tension. How dare a Gentile, a Gentile woman at that, A pagan woman, a woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit in her, how dare she barge in here and not just touch a rabbi, but make a request of him? You need to understand the cultural setting here. If she did this to a Pharisee, he would have wrapped himself up in his robes so that she wouldn't even be able to touch him. And... Her, probably literally, out of the house, and then do whatever the first century equivalent of bleached was to that room. How dare she? The courage of this woman, the boldness of her faith, she knows. She does not possess the racial, the, tech, the sexual, the cultural, the social barriers. She, she does not possess any of those qualifications. She does not care. She goes to Jesus without invitation and begs Jesus to heal her daughter, and she will not take no for an answer. In Matthew's account of this moment, it's in chapter 15 if you want to cross-reference, the disciples are sort of annoyed. By this showing of this woman Because of her persistent Begging They begged Jesus to get this woman To stop It's that kind of scene right now It's not neat and pretty It's very ugly This is a scene at the intersection Of desperation and hope This woman is in a posture Of deep respect but also Personal grief Look I told myself I wasn't going to do this But I think I should Uh, We're going to take a sidebar for just a second. You cool with that? What I'm about to say from this point forward, and I'll let you know when I'm done. I want to be clear, is not the main point of this story. Okay? It's not. Think of this as bonus content. But just because it's not the main point, I believe does not mean we should not address it it's not one of my three points it's not even integral to the main idea of the sermon but in fact i think what i'm about to say has deep significance for us right now parents sitting in this room i want you to cling to this text i want you to cling to this text this woman is coming to jesus breaking all the rules as a mother whose child is in danger As a mother who is experiencing deep personal grief, as a mother who is fearful for the safety of her child, our Lord inclines his ear to her. Some of you, some of you are not in the same boat as this woman. Okay. But some of you can identify with her grief. Some of you can identify with her fears. I have nowhere to go. I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus cares. Jesus cares and he's, he's listening and he is able. Can you look at this text and see that this is a, kind, a different kind of healing? that we've seen throughout Mark's gospel before. Every healing and spiritual liberation we have seen. Jesus has been present in the room or in front of this person. Jesus was with the demoniac in the synagogue. Jesus was with Peter's mother-in-law. He was with the crowds in Peter's house. He was with the leper. He was with the paralytic who came through the roof. He was with the man with the withered hand. He was with the crowds who touched him to be healed on the beach. He was with the disciples for the storm. He was with with the demoniac turned missionary he was with the woman of blood who he called daughter he was with Jairus's daughter he was with the few in Nazareth he was with the bread for the 5,000 he was with the disciples in the storm again he was with the people at Gennesaret. he never sees this little girl he never looked at her he never said a word to her it is her healing that comes by the way of a mother's please God listens to the pleas of your parents. Praise God. Amen. Children in this room the posture of this woman is the posture your parents is willing to take. God listens to the pleas of parents. He sees the size of your trust in him. He is able. Trust in his sovereign hand and in submission like this woman at his feet according to his grace and his mercy according to his perfect will beg for your children because he hears. It's not a guarantee of deliverance although in this text we see it done but it is a guarantee of compassion towards you. His compassion Passion towards them his inclined ear towards you and the assurance of his holy hand to do what is good and right and true according to his will i'm done back to the main idea bold faith this woman possesses bold unyielding faith a faith that we should long to obtain we should look towards this dear sister and say, Lord, Lord, give me that kind of faith. But, but how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to her bold faith? Look at, look at, look at 27, verse 27. He said, he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. E. <laughs> Disciples in the room were like, and hey, we told you to get this woman away. We didn't tell you to insult her. That's a strange answer, isn't it? It's a really strange answer. In our day today, we live in a very dog friendly world. I have a dog. Most of you have dogs. The Hodges don't have dogs, and they're not part of the elect, but we're praying for them. <laughs> We live in a very dog-friendly world. That's not the case at this time period. That's not the case here. Dogs were not the symbolism of loyalty, friendship, and companionship that they are for us today. Dogs to them are considered less a creature. Wild, scavengers. They're considered unclean. And so many Jews use this word as a racial slur towards the Gentiles. And it was very insulting. Uh, I believe Tim Keller uses the example of, of David and Goliath. When, when David goes to face Goliath, Goliath says, am I a dog that you would send me this boy? That's the context we're dealing with. So Jesus, so, so why does Jesus say this to her? Why does Jesus say, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the, the children's food and throw it to the dog. That seems problematic. It seems insulting, but that's not what's happening here. Yes, Jesus is using very strong language. And it is language that this woman is familiar with. And in the context, it can be perceived as insulting. But this woman, this is the story, the woman is begging at Jesus' feet. And Jesus seemingly says no and calls her a dog. But that's not what's happening. Jesus is giving a parable. Jesus is giving this woman a parable using the language of the land. That's a sidebar for another day, but I'm not going to do that now. we would be here for two hours. Remember, why does Jesus use parables? Why does Jesus use parables? It's to create a line in the sand. Unbelievers, they don't understand the meaning of parables. To them, it's confusing and unclear, offensive even. But to believers, parables are encouraging. Parables are instructive. Jesus' words here are just that. It is a test of her faith. And if understood, it is something that will increase her faith. And the woman's answer here is truly profound. In her reply, or, or, or actually, her reply is world-changing. It is world-changing. Look at verse 28. She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I'm going to help you out. Jesus says to her, Woman, don't you know? Don't you realize that you're outside the family? That the covenants made from God were not made to your community right now? That the promises of God aren't to your people right now. The Jews are the children of God. You know that, right? You are a mother. You don't feed your children before you feed the dogs. I'm not here for the Gentiles right now. I'm here to rest. I'm here for respite. I didn't come for you yet. I came for Israel. I came for the Jews. Do you see it, church? Jesus isn't brushing her off. He's not even insulting her. He offers a parable of testing, a parable of truth, but it is also a parable of offering. And she gets it. She understands it. She says, yes, Lord, you're right. You're right. Those promises, those covenants, you're right. They're not for me yet. I accept it. I accept that I am unclean. I accept that I'm outside the family. But also, there is more than enough on that table for the whole world and the dogs do eventually eat from the table and I'm here for mine and I want it now. You've been to Israel, the children have been fed. What's on the floor is enough for me. What you are offering is enough for everyone. The bread of life is more than enough for me. I want it now. I came for it now. Church, what an what an amazing You don't have to say amen. I know what she's saying. What an amazing reply. A beautiful response great answer. She understands the words of Christ, understands the parable, and in her reply to Mark's writing is world changing. It's revolutionary. There are, as far as we know, 14 people in this room. One is a Jewish rabbi, 12 are male Jewish disciples, and one is a Gentile woman for seven chapters. These male Jewish disciples have not understood parables entirely. You can't debate that. We've been going verse by verse. For seven chapters, they have not understood Jesus' mission. But in one short parable, this Greek unclean woman, socially inferior to the men, understands. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her for teaching these boys a lesson. Now, Matthew says Jesus is astounded. Matthew says Jesus is amazed, that he's filled with joy. Why? Because it's not just the posture of her response, but the exercise of her faith thereafter. And here we find our last two points. A hindrance to the faith. Her response is worth gleaning from. From her response, we can see not just how we can receive such admirable faith, but also how we cannot. What hinders our increase of faith? For some of you, you don't have faith in Christ. You do not have yet the wonder when you see his ways. You still yet do not see the beauty of his offering, a life filled with freedom, freedom from a life mastered by your deceitful hearts. Friend, look to the faith of this woman. May God give you the eyes to see her. Example, ears to hear her words, hearts to receive what she has received for Jesus. But for most of you in this room, Most of you in this room have saving faith in Christ. You already possess that. But maybe what you don't have is a faith for your continued sanctification in him a faith that and Paul says in Colossians 2 as you received Christ Jesus so continue to walk in him a faith that when desperation arises in you a faith that when depression knocks on your door a faith that when the things of this world come to take away take you away clings to the reminder and the remembering of I have eaten from the floor the crumbs of your mercy and grace and they have satisfied me to the uttermost I have eaten as a dog and now I eat as a child. What gets in the way of us having that bold, assertive faith is our pride. You cannot, you cannot come to Jesus and stand on your own moral ground. You cannot come to Jesus standing on your own goodness and self-righteousness. That's not the center of this woman's assertiveness. That is not the posture of this woman. Rather, that's been the posture of the Pharisees. You cannot confront. You you can't come in your uh, assertion of your own rights, of your own moral standing, of your own religious stamina. Could you imagine... Could you imagine if this woman came up to Jesus, barged in her, with her head held high, loud and outspoken, wore all of her disqualifications uh, uh, as a badge of honor to approach a rabbi like that. She wore them as a badge of honor. She says, Jesus, I am a strong, independent Gentile woman. And because of everything that I am is what this world despises, I demand that you heal my daughter right now because your power demands your responsibility to act. Now go on. Well, what if that was her posture? No. She doesn't even flinch when Jesus seemingly calls her a derogatory name. She, She could have puffed herself up, right? She could have said, how dare you call me a dog? You're a rabbi. You should know better. But no. In her desperation, she does not lean on her inner strength. She does not lean on her own self of moral altitude in her need. She doesn't come to the king with demands. In her hope, she doesn't come looking to impress Jesus with her self-confidence. No, she comes lowly. She comes humbled. She comes listening, yet bold and full of confidence in the king's ability and power. Family, a heart that desires Jesus is a heart that is full of faith. A heart that is full of understanding, full of the realization of their stature in comparison to him, full of, humi- uh, full of humility, full of dependence. That is the heart of this woman. That is at the foundation of her plea. I understand, Jesus, that I have nothing to bring to the table, but would you feed me anyway? I have nothing that even warrants a discussion with you, but would you hear me anyway? Anyway? I have no power, no authority, no station to save my family from the darkness of our hour. But would you shine your face on us anyway? That is the posture we must have. Pride hinders our faith. My last point is this. How do we obtain this faith? And the answer is through Christ and Christ alone. Through Christ And Christ alone from this woman, we understand that we cannot come contending for our rights, but rather we come with what Tim Keller calls rightless assertiveness. It's, It's a posture of I have no rights, but would you bless me still? That's how she's wrestling with Jesus. That's how she is contending with God in the most most respectful manner, fully knowing that she is not coming to Jesus on the basis of her own righteousness, but on the basis of his. She says, I accept my station. I accept my position. Because I understand I do not deserve your kindness. I do not deserve your grace. I do not deserve your mercy. I don't, but I want it. I want it. I don't want more of mine. Instead, I acknowledge I have none. I want yours. Give me what I don't deserve, and would you give it to me now? I'm not looking for social status. I'm looking for eternal security. I'm not looking for political correctness. I'm looking for spiritual satisfaction. I can't make it myself, but you can make it in me. Family, this this is the offering that is extended to you this morning. This morning, you have access You have access to Christ in the desperation of your soul, fully knowing the deceitful mess that is your heart in contrast to a holy God. It's the desperation of her predicament that is driving her to seek something outside herself. And it is the same for you this morning. Don't miss that. It is the same for you this morning. You have no power. You have no control. You have no authority over the wickedness of your heart. Instead, you come You come this morning with rightless assertiveness. You come to the Father, and you say, you have what I need, and I'm here for it. I'm here for it. This woman's answer to Jesus in this parable is the answer Jesus has been looking for in all of Israel. It's the answer he's been looking for in his disciples, but he finds it in this Gentile woman instead. What a beautiful picture. And so Jesus rewards her. I love what he says in Matthew's account, Matthew 15, 28. When Jesus answered her after she says her reply. Jesus says, "O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus is so impressed, so amazed by her. He grants her request an increase of faith, even though that is not what he came to do at that moment. She leaves that place because what happens? It says her daughter was healed, right? He says go you got what you want Right and she leaves that place She leaves Oh man y'all not hearing She leaves that place on the strength of Jesus' word alone She's got no data She's got no data She's got no empirical evidence To support the claim of Jesus That her daughter has been made well She's got nothing When she leaves that house that says My daughter's okay There's nothing, there's no factual data. She didn't get no messenger reports to the house and say, hey, your daughter's all right. He did it. No, he says, go, your daughter's healed. And she leaves. She leaves with nothing but the word of Christ. And Mark makes sure to remind his family that you can take Jesus at his word. Oh, Mark, Mark makes sure to tell us that Jesus is a faithful friend, that he never lies, that this woman went home with her faith emboldened by the word of God. She walked on home with no facts, just faith. And look at verse 30 of Mark. She went home, she found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Oh, church, she goes home and her daughter is laying down, healed, normal, fine, because Jesus always keeps his word. Again, you don't got to say amen. I know it's true. Jesus always keeps his word. When he says, I am the bread of life, he keeps his word. When he says, I came not to be served, but to serve, he keeps his word. When he told the leopard, I'm willing to make you clean, and he did. He keeps his word. When he told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, he keeps his word. When he says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners, and calls Levi to himself, oh, church, he keeps his word. When he said, I'm bringing in a new kingdom, and all its citizens are my children, oh, he keeps his word. Jesus did not lie to her. At this moment, he did not come for the Gentiles yet. Not at this moment. He is still focusing on the Jews. But the faith of this woman impressed him indeed. He was moved by her boldness and assertiveness that he gives her a taste of the work to come. To Mark in his writing, this story is that handsome. It is this unclean Gentile woman who is the first person to finally understand what all of Israel so far cannot. The, to the first church who received this letter first arguing over who the faith belonged to this lesson serves as both encouragement and rebuke but more than that serves as a reminder to something more beautiful the answer to an, imper- a, a, an important question how can you obtain this great faith you have to eat as a dog before you eat as a child that's the point here that's the point here You have to eat as a dog before you eat as a child. We are all dogs looking under the table for crumbs. And God, so gracious and kind, has enough food for his children and the dog's church. We get to eat. We get to eat. We get to taste and see of his goodness despite our desperation, despite our circumstances, despite the pervasions of our heart. We get God still. In him, the possible, the impossible is made possible. In him, everyone who comes hungry will be fed. In him, the unclean are made clean, and the pride or prideful are humbled. In him, we have mercy and grace in the form of Christ. The Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus humble and confident, and the result was Christ's word, his healing power, and her faith emboldened. It was in the past that this woman came to Jesus on the other side of the cross, but today... But today, but today, it is Christ and his word that comes to you. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And all you have to do is approach him humbly. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can come humbly to the Lord, to the king who has approached you first and receive the rest of Christ as this woman did when she returned home and saw her daughter in bed resting as a sign of a promise well kept stand with me and worship